Hi everyone, Kate Midden here. The episode of Long Story Short you're about to hear was taped live from New York. It's a conversation between our UN correspondent, Amy Lieberman, and our associate editor, Idva Saldinger, about trends in impact investing. Idva just got back from a big conference on impact investing at the Vatican, where she got the latest news and inside conversations firsthand. Enjoy, and we hope you'll continue to join us for Long Story Short, Thursdays at noon on Facebook. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Amy Lieberman. I am our New York correspondent, and I am here in New York City with Adva Saldinger, who is our associate editor. Uh, welcome to Long Story Short. Sorry we got started a little bit late today. Um, so we're here today to talk about impact investing, and Adva is the perfect person for this. Um, one of the reasons being she recently came back from a conference at the Vatican focused on this. Could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of generally what, what, what you learned and what the real purpose sure. was? So people might hear Vatican and impact investing and kind of scratch their heads. Um, but this is actually the third time that the Vatican has um, held a conference on impact investing that's also organized by Catholic Relief Services, sort of in partnership with the Vatican. So I came back from Rome last night, and it's a bit of an unusual conference, right? It's not your typical impact investing conference when you see priests and nuns and cardinals. Um, but it was a really interesting gathering and really brought together um, a core group of people who are both sort of practitioners and thinkers in this space um, across a range of different instruments and sort of risk profiles. Interesting. Okay. And what were some of the major kind of beyond what you just said, what were some of the major takeaways that you got from the conference sure. really? Um, well, let me take a half step back because for people who don't know what impact investing is, maybe yeah, it's worth, be it's worth defining. Um, so impact investing is essentially, um, you know, investing that is done with a specific impact, be it social or environmental in mind. And that would be sort of at its core, it is seeking not just a financial return, but also a return on some sort of um, social or environmental impact. So that can come across sort of a wide range of different types of investments. And so one of the things that we talked about, especially to start the um, conference is Matt Bannock from Omidyar Network, which has done a lot of work um, sort of on the, helping to build the field of impact investing, talked about what they t deem as an impact continuum. So they look at you know, different types of investments along a continuum that are all seeking impacts. So on the one side, you have what are sort of truly commercial investments, and that would be an investment that is achieving competitive commercial returns like any other investment out there. And, and there are sort of multiple types of investments in that category. Those who have sort of already been vetted by the market and have some proof behind them. And those that maybe are slightly earlier stage that you know, have the potential for those commercial investments but um, haven't yet been validated by the market. And so there are an increasing number of funds who are sort of playing in that um, commercial space that are seeking those sort of commercial returns, whether that be you know, 20 IRR um, along with the impact return mm -hmm. um, and then and then you sort of have a middle ground and one of the things that was discussed is sort of a challenge around what is that you know let's not forget the middle ground as you know you see a growing number of traditional investors um, starting to get into this space um, 
how do you not forget that sort of middle area that also needs investment where you might not be getting those competitive returns, but you're probably having an outsized impact. So that's a place where people who are a little more risk tolerant, you know, donors, foundations, people like that, you know, sort of one of the things we talked about is where do different actors sort of fit into this mm-hmm. continuum of investments? And then there are certain, there's grant capital that's necessary too in order to help make some of these um, businesses happen. And, and obviously, I mean, one point that goes without saying is that you can't, um, you can't, you know, impact investment is not the end all be all. There, you can't solve every development ch- uh, ch- challenge with um, commercial capital or, or with capital. There are some challenges that don't lend themselves to that. Obviously, if, you know, if something is gonna be funded through investment, it has to be able to produce a return. Right. And are there, that makes a lot of sense, and are there particular places right now or industries or even regions where you're seeing this happen more or you see as kind of ripe grounds for this type of investment? Sure. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of people would look at sort of the climate or environmental space as the most mature part of this um, sector. And that's because in part you have products behind it and you have tangible ways of measuring it. And it's an area where... um, companies and organizations are really seeing the tie to, you know, benefit of investing. So really starting to recognize the long-term risks that uh, climate change pose. Right. And so you have a green bonds market that's grown really significantly. And so I think you're seeing in the climate space, I think there's a lot of potential um, in the health space where you have good metrics. I think one of the key um, challenges, but also, you know, I I think one of the things that sort of dictates some of these investments is where do you have really clear metrics for how to measure the impact? And those sectors mm-hmm. tend to have um, a little bit more life in them right now. And I imagine doing that metrics work and really getting the full analysis, that can be kind of hard to do in a lot of different instances. Yeah, you know, and I think that's one of the, in, in talking to a lot of people at this conference, that's one of the challenges. One, for, for one, you're seeing a lot of different types of metrics or frameworks emerge. Um, so there's a question in the industry around, you know, how do these interact with one another? How do you sort of create some sort of standardization? Do we need that? Mm-hmm. How do you, you know, is it possible to create some sort of measure of impact that exists across sectors? So you could have a more general measure of what does impact look like that's similar to an IRR, right? It's really, right. really easy to measure that financial return. We have the language, we have the ability to do that. But how do we measure some of these social or environmental returns? And, and when you're talking about that measurement, are you only measuring the immediate impact, right? How long? So you could me- measure, measure yeah. health Im- impacts, for example, or right. you could measure an immediate education impact. But what's the follow-on effects? Are we measuring sort of the full spectrum of impact? And I think it's a place where there's a lot of challenges and a lot of discussion in the field, and people people are trying different things. One of the people we heard from at the conference was from the Rise Fund, which is um, a two billion dollar fund um, that is seeking commercial rates of return, but on impact driven investments, and so. They've been doing a lot of work sort of looking at this and developing a framework that, you know, they're trying to figure out how do we create an effective framework where we're, you know, actively measuring both that, you know, financial impact, making sure we can't not have the competitive returns because of the way they're structured. Um, But we also won't do an investment if it doesn't have the social or environmental return. 
That's really interesting. Okay. So if that standardization were to occur, um, how do you see that really looking? Would there be a particular body that oversees that or implements that? Or is that still sort of a question? You know, I think there's a lot of questions around yeah. that. And I think part of it is, you know, you see there's, you know, leaders in, in different aspects. You have um, a couple different organizations who have been doing this. Um, I know it's something that the Global Impact Investing Network is thinking a lot about. Um, I had a chance to sit down and have a really good conversation with Amit Burry, who's the head of the GIN, um, about some of the things that they're sort of thinking about. And they're definitely thinking about this impact measurement space. Um, you know, they have a set of metrics, but they're thinking about what is their role as a convener um, in the industry for you know, helping people sort of figure out what are the right metrics to mm -hmm. use. And, and one thing I would be, um, that I feel like I have to say in this conversation is the SDGs have provided a framework. So I do think people are looking to the SDGs um, as something to benchmark against. So how can we look at the SDGs as a way to think about what are the impacts we're trying to seek? It's a way to quanti quantify that and I guess yeah. just make sense out of it. And yeah, that's interesting. Um, at the conference, did you hear of any solutions posed for some of these challenges that you're yeah. talking about? They're interesting. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, one example that, that I think is really interesting, which is sort of an impact investing blended finance vehicle. And what that means is that it has um, different types of capital that have come into this fund to make it possible. And that means that um, you might have some, you know, some investors that are seeking somewhat more competitive returns and others who maybe just want to get their money back in some capital that might be longer term or more patient um, than some of the rest of it. And so the example I wanted to talk about is the Health Access Fund. Um, and this is a fund that has been around for several years. It's now a, um, I think, $47 million fund, somewhere right around there. Um, and that was mobilized to really provide financing um, for local small and medium-sized hospitals um, in Africa. And so that, that fund is done in partnership with Farm Access. And Farm Access has developed um, a sort of evaluation system for hospitals. And so they'll go into a hospital and they'll do an evaluation and um, give them a sort of safe care ranking. Um, from one star to five stars, and then give them a roadmap for how the hospital can improve its standards of care. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this fund is critical because a lot of hospitals were finding, okay, we've identified what some of our key challenges and key issues are, um, but we need to then finance the improvement of our lab or things as simple as an intercom system, which could really help with patient flow mm -hmm. and improve sort of the number of patients they can see in a day but local banks were unwilling to do it. Hmm. It was a risk they weren't willing to take. They often came in and said, well, you can't give the hospitals collateral, but you have to give us some form of collateral. And for many of these hospitals, there just isn't something else that they, they have as yeah. collateral. And so uh, what this fund does is it works with those local financial institutions to enable them to make these investments in the hospitals. And one of the hospitals we heard about um, happens to be a Catholic hospital, um, the Consulata Hospital in Kenya. And um, that hospital, when the assessment first came in, they were a two-star hospital. And now within um, two or three years, they're a four-star hospital. Wow. To give you a sense of the you know, a, a three-star hospital is sort of a good hospital in Kenya. There are probably only two that are five-star mm. hospitals. So a four-star hospital is a really high standard of care, um, and it's quite a significant impact. And they also went from seeing something like um, 
you know, I don't know, 12 or 15,000 patients in 2015 to seeing nearly 80,000 patients in 2017. So they're able to serve um, a much larger number of patients. They don't have to refer out anymore. And the quality of care is significantly better. Um, and in part because they're seeing so many more patients and have improved their quality of care, they're actually making a lot more money. Um, and so they've been able to pay down that loan and pay mm. down their debt and the borrowing that they did to be able to expand the hospital to serve the community right. much faster than the terms that they had agreed to. And so it's just a really interesting example of seeing how you could get in, how you could bring some other types of capital to come in and de-risk the investment for these local banks. Um, this particular hospital has certainly proven it can pay back and you know, may go back for another loan to sort of make the additional level of improvements it's looking for in the future. So that's a really interesting example of how when you can bring in different forms of funding together, it can really help unlock a key challenge and improve quality of quality and access. Really accelerate their work, it yeah. sounds like, yeah. So, I mean, that sounds like a really great scenario for a lot of different health institutions to find themselves in. Where do you see this not working, potentially, or where kind of where is it still limited? Yeah, you know, I mean, there's a lot of questions. I think, I think that there's a lot of potential out there. I think one of the biggest challenges is developing and building these vehicles is really challenging. Just physically um, putting what is like physically putting it all together. Yeah, yeah. finding the different partners Connecting. who are willing to mm-hmm. put put in the different types of risk. You have to sort of create in many of these cases a bespoke financial vehicle. It's a yeah. fund that isn't like any other fund. That means all the legal language and everything like that has to be sort of recreated from the start and so that becomes a a big challenge you know I mean and it's that startup cost that can be challenging um, but that there's also potential to scale so already this health access fund closed a second round um, and it'll look to do more in the future it'll look to expand so I think that there is a lot of potential out there but the challenges in sort of building up and developing some of these vehicles around standardization um, you know, there are going to be areas where it's just harder to do impact investments or create these vehicles. You know, things like democracy and governance work, hmm. right? That's a place where it's hard to have a tangible, measurable metric. How, um, how you're doing, how things, yeah. Exactly. And so I think, you know, there will be some spaces that w- will rely on grant capital. And that's something that was said, you know, a number of times at this conference is that, Impact investment does not replace grant capital. It doesn't mean that we don't still need that grant capital. And so with the health access fund example for there, there is a grant component, especially Mm -hmm. in the early rounds, because you have to fund farm access to be able to go in there and do those assessments of hospitals. Now they're looking for ways to make that more sustainable of the long time, long term. So for example, they might include the cost of that assessment of farm access, helping them in the cost of the loan down the road, but you had to have grant financing in that from the beginning. Right. So I think uh, figuring out um, where different actors can play along the spectrum is important. And I think the key is really that there will be certain things that have to be grant financed, you know? Mm Humanitarian response is another one of those. That's what I was thinking. Just how this would kind of work in an emergency setting or even a post-conflict setting. Yeah, I mean, there's different ways that you can you can think about that, but I think in many cases, you know, if if you just have to feed starving people, there's not yeah, there's not a business behind that. Now, obviously, we're seeing a lot of interesting, you know, cash assistance, humanitarian programs, and and other ways that you could, um, you know, support maybe small SMEs in refugee camps. We know refugees are in places for 
you know, I think the average, it's over 20 years that if you're a refugee today, you're likely to be away from your home for more than 20 years. I think it's right. closer to 29. And so how do we create opportunities for refugees? There are ways that you can use impact investing finance and you can support, I mean, it depends on the, you know, legal right restrictions and all that in the country where they are, but supporting refugee entrepreneurs is definitely a way you could use that money. Mm -hmm. So, but that's more in sort of the long-term support. It's a little bit hard in sort of the immediate response. Okay. Um, when you were speaking of actors, I was thinking of the Catholic Church, some yeah. Catholic organizations and how they kind of factor into this. Yeah. What is their incentive, do you find, for, for them particularly to be involved in this work? Yeah, you know, this is the third time that this conference has been held. It's been held every two years, so over a six-year period. And, um, you know, I had the opportunity to sit down um, and talk with with some church officials, with um, Cardinal Turkson, who is the head of the Dicastery for Integral Human Development, um, and also to Father Zampini in, in that Dicastery. And, and the two of them were... Um, talking about a number of different ways and reasons that the Catholic Church is thinking about this. And, you know, the first time they held the conference, it was really just to, un, you know, to, you know, find out what is impact investing. Right. The second time it was more about, well, you know, what would this mean for, for the church? And, and this time it was really looking more towards action. And so they look at it, one, as a tool of sustainability for the church mm. in the longer term. Um, and I think they're also looking at how does the church do development in different ways. So I think on the one hand, can the church be thinking about designing programs more sustainably, investing in small and medium-sized entrepreneurs? And there was one um, sister who was there who was doing this work in the community she's working in. And, and I, I think that um, Catholic Relief Services sees one of their roles as helping to do some of that technical assistance and training within the church. Um, I think another aspect is, uh, you know, Catholic institutions around the world control a lot of capital. Um, and whether that's at the diocese level or it's, you know, hospital systems or universities um, or even, you know, the sort of pensions for nuns and priests as they age, that money is, you know, managed by different institutions. And the, the church is thinking about how do we encourage those institutions to invest their money with impact to sort of align the investments that they're making with the you know core mission and values of the church and i think a lot of this has been driven by pope francis mm -hmm. um, he has put a big emphasis on the poor and, and they see impact investing as a critical way um and, and basically what father zampini said is that we can't get to the scale at the speed that we need to serve the poor without investors and that's why they convene this. And, and the church obviously has a strong convening power and ability. And so they did bring in a really great group of thinkers to spend time really digging into it. One of the things that was great about this conference is that people stuck around. People had those conversations. And it wasn't just, you know, someone came in to speak and then, and then took off. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think it was really valuable for those in the room and, 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 and really some really interesting conversations that emerged. One of the things I'd like to talk about, I talked to Sean Callahan, who's the head of CRS, of Catholic Relief Services. And, you know, he was talking about where impact investing sort of fits in for them as an international NGO. And they, you know, see 
their work shifting somewhat. They definitely think that in the future they will be doing more innovative financing in the way that they're looking at programs. They've already started to shift. And, and you talked about it really being a matter of how do you create sustainability in their programs, mm -hmm. right? So how do you, you know, ensure that there is a life, even in their grant-funded programs afterwards, right? Just stop after the four exactly. years or whatever, yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, he said they'll be doing more maybe, you know, funds, you know, or guarantees or looking at development impact bonds and other types of vehicles that they can be engaged in. And he said one of the benefits that they have is that they have a lot of unrestricted funds. Um, and that means that they can take some of those risks and do some of that innovation. And that's, and that's a place where, um, because the way that they're funded, because they have a lot of private donors, um, they might have a little bit more flexibility than some other organizations. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually one example, uh, CRS made an announcement um, at the conference of a new blended finance vehicle that they're helping to start with the Inter-American Development Bank. Um, and this is another really interesting example where you identify a funding gap, where you, in this case, it is water and sanitation systems in El Salvador. The local municipalities have been unable to get financing for the local, from the local banks. Um, for a number of different reasons. In some cases, it's that they just think it's too risky. In some cases, the interest rates are just too high to make it a viable proposition. And so what they've done is they've created a, a, new, um, a new financing vehicle. It's called uh, Azure Capital. It's gonna be a blended finance fund that will go in and help. Uh, they're also creating sort of a sister um, technical services company that will be based in El Salvador. Um, and together, sort of the fund with the technical assistance services will help local municipalities identify what they need to do to better serve the water needs of their residents mm. and then provide them with the loan that they need to do that. And this sort of grew out of a CRS pilot. They tried this and it and it worked quite well. The repayment rates were quite high. People, in fact, were willing to pay a bit more for a consistent, clean supply of water. And so I think because of that, um, they said, okay, let's go out and see if we can raise some capital. So the idea is, you know, the fund maybe starts small, but then the next stage it grows and they're looking to start in El Salvador, but eventually expand to other countries in the region. So it's another interesting example of how you can use sort of a variety of different capital and put it to work to sort of meet uh, a need that the local commercial markets are not meeting. Right. Um, okay, so just a few more questions for you, if you don't mind, our last few minutes here. Um, for people or organizations who want to benefit from, from this type of investing, mm -hmm. organizations that want to get involved with it, what do you think they should really know increasingly, just based off your reporting? And, yeah. yeah, you know, look, I mean, I think that we've seen over the past several years an increasing number of NGOs looking at this. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting development. They're doing it and experimenting with it in a lot of different ways. Um, they're saying, well, how could we be part of the pipeline? Because I think you also have to have a conversation around having impact-driven investable businesses, right? Because it's not only about, um, you know, do we have the capital? In fact, the capital might be there. Um, but do you actually have bus businesses that are, you know, sort of a mission-driven, impact-driven business that can deliver on that impact that these companies can invest in? So I think some NGOs say, okay, maybe we can be part of the pipeline of identifying those companies, especially small and medium enterprises. 
Um, and that might be a role for them. Um, I think, you know, I think the challenge is that um, within the development community, there aren't necessarily a lot of finance experts, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that one, one thing that probably a lot of organizations are thinking about, and this is something I talked to um, Sean Callahan about, is really bringing on more um, finance expertise to be able to help to design some of these vehicles, to really think through what does this mean for an organization? Because I think there are questions about, you know, should, should big NGOs be managing funds, not fund managers? Should they partner with people who manage the funds on their behalf? Um, and so I think there's some really important and interesting conversations happening around that. Um, in terms of organizations seeking capital, um, I think increasingly having a really strong sort of proof of concept, you know, one of the challenges people are looking for a track record, you know, so figure in your own sorry, a track record in your own financial right history of your work yeah, yeah that you okay. can prove that what you're doing is going to generate a return right um and and so I think that you know the more you can have that sort of data, you're probably in a better position. But I think um, it's also important for organizations to think about when when might they take grant capital? When is that not the right solution? Um, what sort of systems and leadership do they want to put in place? And then really identifying who are the investors in the space where they are. Are they a company that's going to be able to generate really high returns? If they're not, if they're playing in that sort of middle space of high impact but maybe somewhat lower returns, identifying who the investors are in that space and then targeting them, mm -hmm. right? Because there are going to be some investors that probably won't invest in them just because of their risk appetite and their risk profile. Um, but I think, I think that there is, you know, there are some concerns in the industry right now. The industry is broadening in many ways. You're seeing sort of mainstream investors develop an interest and that's driven by demand. Um, and there is sort of a fear of what people are calling impact washing. What does that um, mean? Sort of like greenwashing, okay. right? So it's a dilution of a focus on impact. Um, and I think one of the challenges there is um, how are individual companies identify, you know, how are they measuring impact and how are they defining impact, right? So can they just, you know, essentially people can just say that this is an impact fund um, or yeah, this fund is an impact investment. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, in talking to Amit at the gin, this is a place that as a key institution in the industry, they really see it's important to help set some of those standards and help people really identify what is an impact-driven fund. And obviously having those metrics is an important piece of that. Um, but it's really key to you know, make sure that investments are available across the continuum, that there isn't just this focus on the you know, high-end return spectrum, because I think that will leave behind a lot of a lot of businesses, especially a lot of small and medium-sized enterprises um, that, you know, time after time have been proven to be the engine of growth of any economy. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I just wanted to check to see if we had any questions coming in from people, viewers, perhaps. Uh, yeah, we did have one question, which is, do you know of any uh, retail exchange traded funds that uh, individual investors could invest in that have an impact investing character? Hmm. Uh, that's a really good question. So the question was about uh, retail investment funds. So one thing I will say is that there are few opportunities to, do, to invest in impact for um, sort of individuals who are not accredited investors. And I think that's something that the industry is thinking about too. How do we democratize this? And I think it's a really interesting conversation because I, I think um, millennials in particular 
would be interested in investing in it. It's something I've asked people about often because it's, you know, how you I would put, right? I would, I would put some of my capital to work in an impact. It seems smart, yeah. Right? That's smart way to do it. Um, mainly because then my investments are aligned with the things I believe in, right? And I think um, there probably need to be more opportunities developed to do that. Um, Calvert provides some opportunities. I think you can invest in community notes at as low as $25, but that's um, a little bit different than sort of a traditional investment fund or, or vehicle for individuals to invest in. So that's definitely, um, I think, a, a space to watch. Mm-hmm. I think people who um, who crack that will will be able to develop some really interesting products for the market. But that's, I mean, that's one of the things that it's still young like it's a growing industry but it's not that big okay um and then where do you see your reporting kind of going from here what are the issues you want to continue looking at so i'll be writing up some of the you know i just got back last night so (laughs) i'll be hard at work writing up some of the takeaways from the conference itself but the other thing to mention is that we're getting ready to launch a whole series about blended finance which is a piece of this broader impact investing conversation and really looking at how do you develop um you know different funds or vehicles or platforms that are going to allow you to use some of that donor capital to leverage in um, sort of more commercial capital, whether that be debt or equity. When's that going to start coming out? Um, that'll be in the next couple of weeks. Great. So Something yeah. to look out for. Yeah. Um, and then just a few, I realized I did this last time and a little fun question for you, if you don't mind. Um, West Coast or East Coast as someone who's from California and lived on the East Coast for a long time. <laughs> That's a hard debate, you know? I mean, I think part of my heart will always be in the West Coast, um, but I have come to love the East Coast. I certainly often miss the weather. Um, and if you're talking about hiking, environment, nature opportunities, the West Coast wins hands down every time, and that's one of the things I miss the most. Okay, yeah, um, I can see that. And then just one more. You've been doing, I think, a decent amount of traveling this last year or mm-hmm. so now for your reporting. Um, what is your favorite place to report from so far? Oh, that's such a hard question, yeah. especially, you know, because I, I would say that um, reporting trips that get me um, to places where I'm talking to people who are, you know, consumers or who are, you know, actively part-